Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption podcast. I am uh, sitting in my office at Masaka Independent Baptist Church in Kitabazi, Uganda. And it uh, sounds like the rain is beginning to fall, so you may get a little, a little taste of African rain as we go through this study. Now, I am continuing to go through material that I have regarding um, the, the topic is under the heading of Bibliology. And uh, I have so many notes and so many books and so much material to go through that I think is important to, to analyze and to extract from it that which would be helpful to God's people and, and to get this information out to the world. So uh, I am continuing that today and looking at and studying through at this point in our study of bibliology, a book by Dean John Burgeon called Unholy Hands on the Bible. And our topic at the moment, it would fall under the traditional text and textual criticism. The traditional text, if you've been listening through uh, the information taught uh, through our, our Bible school course on bibliology here in Masaka, you would have learned that the traditional text is essentially the, the Greek text that our, our New Testament came from in the King James Bible. And it's known by other names, the Byzantine text, the Antiochian text, the majority text. This is when you take it back to Greek manuscript form. This is before we get to the Textus Receptus or any variant of the Textus Receptus. There are at least 19 and possibly up to 29 editions of the Textus Receptus made by four different men. Starting with Erasmus, then came Robert Stephanus, then Theodore Beza, and then uh, Bonavitcher. Elsevier. So depending on what you're talking about, you have to keep all these things in mind. So, so our, our current focus is manuscripts, pre-Texas Receptus, which of course is pre-King James Bible. John Dean Burgeon or Dean John Burgeon did much that this majority text, the traditional text, was accurate. It was indeed the unedited, un, unmolested Word of God in, in Greek form. And this is important because for the most part, the only Bible in existence today in the English language that comes from that lineage of text 
is the King James Bible. All other Bibles come from various manuscripts that, that primarily have a strong relationship with Alexandria, Egypt, and that is very problematic. So we're going to start off talking about textual criticism. Uh, while as a science, it has good intentions, but the problem is it tends to begin with ungodly presuppositions. And anytime you try and deal with the scriptures from an ungodly presupposition, you, you have a bad starting point. And when it comes to textual criticism of the New Testament, the ultimate aim is to determine what is the true Greek text. That's, that's what everybody wants to know. Uh, that, that's, that's what the argument is for some reason. Uh, they can't look at the, the validity, the strength, uh, the influence of the King James Bible and realize that it, that it has a connection and uh, that, that the documents to which it was connected must be of relevance. Um, instead, they look back, try and figure out what the old, previous, extant manuscripts or text were, and then want to tell you about the validity of books today based on essentially their opinion. Now, th- this is an attempt, all right, if you, if you, when it comes to textual criticism, looking at ancient Greek manuscripts, if you give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, it is an attempt to take us back to the fundamental foundation of our English New Testament, which is fine. I, I, I certainly don't have a problem with that. Uh, my concern is, how do we always end up in this strange anti-King James Bible location? You know, how, how, where does it, where does it, why, and, and, and why is it never based on actual evidence? If it was an attempt to be evidence-based, the evidence would all point to, in, in, in terms of the English Bible, the King James Bible. Um, if you want to go against the overwhelming evidence that exists, you would have to go with the other Bibles. It's pretty clear. I mean, it's, it's really not even close to being debatable. It, it, you'd really struggle to make a case against the King James Bible if, if your aim is to use textual criticism to find uh, valid extant manuscripts that are the Word of God, uh, you, you could only arrive at, at books like the King James Bible. Uh, in Germany, you, you might be able to point to the Luther Bible. Uh, there, have been other, there have been others throughout history and other languages that came from the Masoretic text, if not directly from the Textus Receptus, which Luther did use both of those, then at least the lineage that comes from, from Antioch, Syria. So as we're going to see over time, and as J- Dean John Burgeon is going to prove to us, that is the case. That is exactly how it is. Um, now, we're, we're not even talking yet about the perfection of the King James Bible. We're not talking about the perfection of the English Bible. We're, we're going to try and start from the beginning, since this seems to be such a big deal to so many men who claim to believe the Word of God, but then stand in pulpits criticizing the Word of God. We're going to go back and we're going to look all the way back to the beginning, as far back, Lord willing, as we can go. Now, textual criticism in its most basic form is broken into two areas of study. You have lower criticism, which is a strict examination of the text alone. You're not trying to provide meaning. You're just examining the words that are written. Then you have higher criticism, which is a study into the meaning of the text. One way you might hear that put today is, how do you interpret the Bible. I hate to hear that. I don't believe it's a valid method of approach to the Word of God. You don't interpret it, you believe it. 
it, it means what it says, and, and we really need to do our best to leave it unmolested in that way. Now, textual criticism is an attempt to approach ancient documents, which unfortunately would include biblical texts from a scientific standpoint. Uh, now, there are a couple of problems with this. Uh, first of all, people who speak on behalf of science have openly shamed themselves in recent years. They have, there's, there's a historical trend of them doing that, but never has it been so bad. You know, science can no longer distinguish between a man and a woman. You know, if you look at the botched and politically charged response to COVID-19, you'll see that those are two massive examples of the failure of modern science. And we're going to turn of ancient biblical texts over to people like that. That's a bad starting point. The folly of our modern scientists, it does not diminish the usefulness of true science. Exercise with integrity. Obviously, I'm sitting in a building, I'm using a computer. The, the fact that those two realities exist means that there are some integral scientists out there who are focused on at least objective data, verifiable data. Uh, so, and so far as that's the case, then science is incredibly useful. But when, when you go to a doctor and they ask you, what gender do you identify as? We're in trouble. We have left reality. We have left the realm of science. And now everybody's playing in la-la land. It, it's all a joke from that point forward. Um, and historically, we've seen science always, always and eventually align itself with God's word. Um, the, the presupposition may start out against God, the theory may start out against God, the hypothesis may start out against God, but in the end, um, if they have time to prove, if they, if they do indeed have time to prove their, their theories, they end up agreeing with the Word of God to their, to their detriment. Now, honestly, when it comes to approaching the Bible, few men have approached textual criticism with any level of integrity. There have, there have always been some other motive, whether it was Origen, whether it was Tischendorf, whether it was Westcott and Hort, those men have influenced generations of Christians against the Word of God, essentially. And it, it's, it's a shame. Um, Dean Burgeon was one of the very few who were capable of honestly approaching the Word of God. And, and it was his desire, as we'll see, to have an audience of people who were not prejudiced, who would look at evidence and then come to a proper conclusion based on evidence. And man, he, he went out of his way to provide that evidence. He was able to strip the approach to textual criticism out of the hands of ungodly men, as it, as it pertains to the Word of God, at least. Somehow Christians, even Bible-believing Christians, have fallen in love with the teachings of Westcott and Hort. These are ungodly men who did much to sow discord among the brethren and have done so for centuries. The result of their work has been to divide the Christian world. And people who cling to the Word of God in English form by way of the King James Bible, they are considered to be divisive. How is it divisive to stand on the validity, the authenticity, the truth of God's Word? People who are being divisive are those who have divided themselves from God's word and have imagined you can have a room full of people who, who all have different versions of an English Bible 
who all of which say something different, but you're supposed to stand in front of that group, read a verse, and then expound upon that verse when everybody read something different. And sometimes drastically different. Sometimes in the case of the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, and, and the RV, the RSV, uh, you name it. And in many cases, they have completely deleted uh, entire passages. How do you teach that passage to someone who doesn't have it? Dean Bergen would, would not agree. Dean Bergen provides us a godly approach to the Word of God and even textual criticism. He lays, a, he lays down a framework for Bible-believing Christians to be able to honestly approach textual criticism. Now, I'll say for, for just a moment, from my perspective, all right, I would be classified as King James only. I'm okay with that. I, I don't have a problem with that. I do have some criticisms of the King James only camp, and I think that Dean Bergen could greatly help. Um, we tend to be dogmatic and not honest about some of the realities of the King James Bible. That reveals to the world what we are. We're dishonest. They don't want to deal with dishonest people. And so we're going to be required to, to deal with the Bible with a, with a much greater level of intellectual honesty. You can't just be dogmatic. You've got to demonstrate what it is you're saying. And, and that, that, that's, that's essential. Dean Bergen does that. He lays out the issues in a direct and honest manner, then provides numerous proof for his conclusions. Um, he, he, is, he is definitely a data-driven man and provides evidence. We just dogmatically, we make statements and then we blame God and say, well, it's, it's all faith. <laughs> well, even in, your, even in the Bible, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It has to be based on something. You can't use your imagination and then say you're just exercising faith. That, that's not going to work. That's not how things play out. So we're going to spend ample time examining his material. One problem we have to honestly solve as, as Bible-believing Christians, it, it, it deals with the four Gospels. Early manuscripts reveal a great deal of variance between, you know, respective manuscripts. So following Dean Bergen and his thought process in the four Gospels, we can provide localized samples of relevant issues. And looking at these issues, it'll begin to isolate for us where the Word of God is. Uh, he, he does a great job of putting these things together. Now, at some point in manuscript history, there came to exist a wide variance in the readings of biblical manuscripts. At some point in history, by the way, again, to, to poke a little bit at my King James-only brethren, <laughs> there came to be a wide, a wide variance in the readings of the King James Bible. And everybody says they want the Cambridge. What do you mean by that? Do you want the 1762 Cambridge, or do you want the 1931 Cambridge? Um, or do you want an earlier Cambridge uh, edition of the Bible? These are things you need to deal with, and that you need to deal with with understanding. You can't just dogmatically say, I have a 1611 King James Bible. Well, maybe, sort of, but not really. So these are things that have to be dealt with, and, and Bergen uses the four Gospels to, to help identify some of these problems. Everyone knows that, that one must be correct. Right? You have all these readings, and by readings they mean uh, uh, the wording of, of particular text in a manuscript. Um, some of them were changed over time. Well, who did the changing? 
who authorized the changing. And the, the great folly of this entire situation is that men who cling to texts from Alexandria can read the books and the writings and the journals of the men who, of the men who possessed those texts, had them in their possession, and they openly tell you that they changed things. That was their attitude towards the Word of God. But somehow it's still, a, still open for debate. Regardless what this form of scientific discipline reveals, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, I think we're going to look at a lot of strong evidence, and it's going to point us to the traditional text, uh, which, I, you know, that, that was my presupposition already, but now, now I can better explain it to you with actual historical factual evidence. In the end, evidence is not going to be enough for some people they're going to have to take a step of faith. Um, you're going to have to just trust that when God said he was going to preserve his word, that he did that. And, and you're going to have to trust God. Now, much of the dispute put two lines or families of manuscripts, one against the other. One line or family is the Alexandrian line of manuscripts. The other is the traditional line of manuscripts. Again, the traditional line has many names, uh, the Byzantine, the majority, the Antiochian line, uh, these are all valid names for the, the traditional text. Now, understanding where the departure began should be far more simple than the science of textual criticism calls for. Uh, I appreciate a method, but sometimes it's not necessary. <laughs> now, I, it's, it's good to have. I, I'm not saying we shouldn't shouldn't have a proper method to decipher this, these realities and, and to, to uh, organize the data and, and to be able to put together a strong narrative based on factual information. But sometimes it's just, it's so plain and easy to see. And in this case, it really is very plain and easy to see. We know historically that the school of scriptures in Alexandria, Egypt, was in control of the Alexandrian text. That's, uh, you know, Philo, that's Origen, uh, that's, uh, you know, there are a number of men who, a number of names that would be counted among church fathers, oddly enough, who, who came through this school. And this, the, the name of the school is deceptive. The school of the scriptures was a school of philosophy. They just, like many philosophers do, they use the scriptures. They think it has good moral strength. Um, they, they don't really, they don't believe it. And so men like Origen were very open regarding the changes they chose to make to manuscripts, which should then lead us to understand any manuscript in his possession was edited according to his religious and philosophical desires. It's that simple. It really is that simple. But we're, we're going we're gonna to deep dive into it all because it needs to be done and it needs to be said. And, uh, and it was a help. It, it, this study has been a massive help to me, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. We don't want to make it more difficult than it has to be. We will take the time to walk through these arguments. In the end, I believe they will prove to further identify the traditional text as, a, as true and correct. Now, our friend Origen, when I was in Bible school at the Bible Baptist Church in Deland, Florida, my pastor, Brother James, would, every time you said the name Origen or Jerome, he would make everybody hiss or boo. <laughs> so he would say Origen and everyone would start hissing or booing. So... I'm not going to ask you to do that, but you can if you want. 
Origen took his manuscripts with them to Caesarea, where they were copied and used. These came to be known as the oldest extant manuscripts, and the two identifiers are Vaticanus and Sinaitic. By the 4th century, these documents would lose the heart of the people. That's important. God's people, they might get excited about something new uh, regarding Scripture, but then once they realize, you know, this is not it, they tend to throw it by the wayside and go back to the Word of God. I hate that it has to be that way. That is part of the preservation of the church. The church uh, looks at what is available, and they say, this is God's Word here. This, I think it's God's Word, but we're going to look at it, and then after a while, they start to realize, no, it is not God's Word. We're going to reject it. And um, the problem we have today is that because Christians tend to get excited about a, a new copy of the Scriptures, we, we have these organizations now that, that create different versions of the English Bible, and they just make a new one every few years. So the, the getting excited part never stops. Uh, they just keep looking for something new and something new and something new. And the King James Bible is still sitting there, um, <laughs> perfectly valid, perfectly useful, and millions upon millions still use it worldwide. We have Ugandans who speak Luganda here in Africa, reading and teaching and preaching from the King James Bible. So you have no excuse in America. The manuscripts that, that existed, which were somewhat in agreement with Origen, and his manuscripts began to be very small in number, and, and that's still the case. Though they might be the oldest, or at least among the oldest, they, they, and there's not even, it's not even true at this point that they are the oldest. There are other manuscripts as old as those, uh, but they are, they are certainly among the oldest, but as we're going to learn, and you're going to hear me repeat multiple times, ancient doesn't mean accurate. And if it was in the hands of Origen and, and his cohorts, it's not accurate. It was selectively edited. Now, this in its simplest form is the problem set before the Christian world still today. Which line of manuscripts is correct? Is it the Alexandrian line or is it the traditional line? We're going to see if we can provide some answers to that. Which line of manuscripts is correct? The oldest but minority or the younger but majority? Uh, does oldest assume accurate? And that's, that's the problem with this, this argument. It's, it's illogical. Just because it's old doesn't mean it was accurate, doesn't mean it was right. And that, that, that folly is compounded when you see that the majority are spread across the world from copied by different people at different times, and yet they all agree. Um, it, it just it really starts to fall apart. Now, under that same logic and idea, does majority assume accurate? No, it does not. And I, we want to be honest about that. But the study into which we, we are about to venture will help us to verify where the Word of God is in its oldest extant Greek form. That There's nothing wrong with it. I don't need that. I don't, I'm not going back and I'm not going, I don't refer to the Greek. I don't refer to the Hebrew. I have no interest in it. I think the King James Bible is perfectly uh, valid and there is no need for me to look back to Greek or Hebrew to determine what God said. I think, I think we have in English what God said in Greek and what God said in Hebrew. And I, I'm okay with that. But in order to be able to 
to teach honestly where the Word of God is today in English, I need to know where it came from. And so that, that, that's the entire, entire purpose of this study. Now, when the printing press came to be a valid means of distributing written material, textual criticism once again became mainstream. This created a line of godly moves toward gathering the majority text into one book. Now, that, that was huge when that happened, and the result came to be known as the Textus Receptus. Uh, this move began with Erasmus, who produced five editions of the Textus Receptus. Robert Stephanus followed him with four editions. So it, if you're keeping count, that's nine editions so far of the Textus Receptus. Theodore Beza would produce 10 editions. So now we're up to 19. Finally, Bonavir Elsevier and the Elsevier brothers would produce some 10 more editions. Now, it was not called the Textus Receptus until 1633, long after Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. Neither of those three called what they produced, they did, they did not title it the Textus Receptus. But uh, Bonavir uh, Elsevier, in, in his 1633 printing, uh, he put the title Textus Receptus on it, and that's, that's what it came to be known. And I, I, again, if you listen through the Bibliology course, I have criticized men who claim to believe the Bible but, but will not admit that, that we have the Bible in English form in any measure of perfection. It's not that they won't say it's perfect. They won't say it has any measure of perfection at all. Um, almost to the point of saying that what they have is completely useless. And so what they'll say is, well, I believe the Word of God in the originals. And by originals, they mean the Texas Receptus. And so I like to ask them, which one? You have at, at least 19, at most 29 versions or editions of the Texas Receptus. And the King James translators used one of Theodore Beza's uh, editions to translate the Bible. So which one are you referring to exactly as the perfect word of God in the originals? Which makes no sense because the Textus Receptus is not an original. <laughs> so it's, it, it all really is folly. Um, you need to know the history of where your Bible came from, and, and that should help determine for you whether it is valid or not. Now, the aim of textual criticism at this time was to adhere to what came to be known as the received text. What followed was a period in which the focus returned to evidences from manuscripts. Okay, so it, they, everybody got excited about the received text, and they should have been. That, that was a, I mean, imagine thousands of manuscript copies of the traditional text scattered all over the world, uh, often tucked away in museums or monasteries or massive Catholic churches or in some rich man's house, none of which do you have access to. But then Erasmus comes along and he begins the process of condensing all of that into one single book that everybody can have access to that can read and understand Greek. That's a, that's a massive event that we should thank the Lord for. That, that moved us in the direction of the consolidation of, of the Bible into one book and then eventually in, in one book in English. So praise the Lord. Now what, what followed this was a period in which the focus returned to evidences from manuscripts, ancient versions, and writings of the church fathers. This period plunged the Christian world back into a state of division. It was not helpful. It was divisive. Rather than 
clinging to the direction that God gave them, they wanted to go back and start questioning things all over again. And, and um, I'm not completely sure the, the, the motives of the men that were doing this. When you take someone like Tischendorf, who is an explorer more than he is a Bible believer, and he has an opportunity, he finds this manuscript in the trash in a monastery in Egypt, and it's being used to start fires. That's how useless it was. And he wants to buy it and take it back and make a name for himself. It's hard to really determine the motives of these people. Now, during this time, collation of manuscripts came to be popular. And collation, again, if you, look at, if you listen back to the previous bibliology lessons, we talk about collation. Uh, it's an important part of the process of dealing with ancient manuscripts. Um, it came to be popular in this time. And the result was an explosion of theories regarding the accuracy of extant manuscripts. I want to put this explosion of theories into context. This is really when they began to ask the question, where did our Bible come from? How old are these manuscripts we have? Where did they come from? Why do thousands of them agree, but a handful don't agree, but, but suddenly we're giving so much weight to the handful that do not agree? They don't even agree, agree with each other. Though they, they are within the Alexandrian line, they all differ drastically amongst themselves, whereas the, the traditional line, consisting of thousands of manuscripts, they all agree to a nigh on to perfect level. There are some variants, but not, not much. And uh, oftentimes, any variance that exists between them is so minor that you could hardly call it a variance. Uh, but that, that's where we are at this point. Now, these events bring us to the 1800s. And this is where our friend Tischendorf and Trigelles, along with Westcott and Hort, began uh, pressuring the intellectuals of their day to discard the Textus Receptus as well as its origins in the traditional text. Westcott and Hort hated the traditional text and the Textus Receptus. They literally made their own text, which became the foundation for the, the Revised Version. And, and, and they didn't even introduce it to be used with the Revised Version honestly. They did it very deceptively. And again, a lot of that is noted and detailed in the previous lessons. Now, Hort viciously attacked any form of the, of the traditional text. He argued that it came to be popular in Antioch, and therefore it should be called Syrian. Now, if you know anything about the book of Acts, I don't have a problem with that. You shouldn't have a problem with that. I don't, I don't believe. I, don't, I can't see any reason why that would be problematic, but to Hort, it was. Uh, it was considered almost an insult. It, 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 to him, it served to diminish the validity of the traditional text. But the greatest New Testament church in the book of Acts possibly was the church at Antioch. And, and that's the church he's accusing. Um, he, he accuses and continues to accuse having uh, possession of, control over, dissemination of the traditional text. I would say, biblically speaking, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's where Paul and Barnabas were, were church members. You know, that's, that's where the missionary movement started. You know, it's just, devils always find a way to tell on themselves. If you have enough biblical understanding and you listen to what people say, they'll start telling on themselves. Now, he, he believed that Vaticanus and Sinaitic manuscripts were neutral. Neutral. Of course, 
Hort often made ridiculous statements like this, and he could never back up historically anything that he said. It was all narrative. It's all propaganda meant to achieve an end, and he did achieve his end. Now, the two men who stood against this onslaught of attacks on the traditional text were Scrivener and Dean Burgeon. And uh, we thank God for their writings and thank God for the work that they did. Now, as Bible believers, now we're going, to, we're going to go through quickly a few preliminary notes under this next heading. And so, as Bible believers and as people who trust in the King James Bible, we see no need to go back to the Greek or Hebrew text. Now, if you have a problem with that statement, you have a problem with faith in the Word of God. I, I am going to say from the onset, God gave you God gave you the King James Bible. It says what the Greek text says. It says what the Hebrew text says. Going all the way back from the original manuscripts, an actual original, that term is misunderstood and misused today, but an actual original, and then copies of the original, and then the Textus Receptus and Masoretic text, the King James Bible says what those say. You can and you should trust it. And I'm also going to suggest you should stop pointing people to Greek and Hebrew. It's a ridiculous exercise. It has no profit. Now, the reality is there was both Greek and Hebrew text. I'm going to assent to that because I really don't have an option. <laughs> that, that is a historical fact that we must note. There is little to no argument regarding the superiority of the Masoretic text. You never hear anybody question the Masoretes. That is the, the word of God in Hebrew. Now, you, you do hear some mention of the Septuagint, and, and usually the Septuagint goes in line, goes in hand, hand in hand with Alexandrian texts. Uh, the Septuagint is a corrupt document. It was not real. And so it, it goes along perfectly with Alexandrian Greek manuscripts. But the Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus are the two that were foundational to our King James Bible. And so uh, somehow the authority of proper of the proper Greek text is a continual debate. You don't hear much argument for or against the Masoretic text. It's always the Greek text that people want to fight over. Dean Burgeon faithfully spent 30 plus years of his life attempting to determine which Greek text is correct and therefore deserves a place of biblical authority. This man would spend 13 hours in a day just trying to verify one letter. He dedicated his life to, to this endeavor. Uh, Dean Burgeon was not against the use of a valid scientific procedure that would examine the historical authority of the Greek text. His frustration was manifest due to a lackadaisical approach. That's the problem. He desired to see a robust and well-meaning scientific approach. It seems that in his day, scientific disciplines already lacked integrity. And he was frustrated by that. Now, throughout history, men who are willing to subvert truth in exchange for a narrative, they're always dangerous and self-serving. Dean Burgeon desired to see certain ground rules considered. Number one, the text must be considered before the inference. You don't get to go interpret it and then give me your interpretation as the text. Dean Burgeon wanted the text to be foundational. There should be no private interpretations. Now, with that in mind, he believed that lower criticism should always inform higher criticism. But that's still true today. 
Stop telling people you're interpreting it a certain way. Lower criticism. Read the text. What does it say? What it says is what it means. Now you can begin to expound to people what it means because you know what it says. And what it says is going to lock you into the boundaries of the context and not allow you to say foolish things. In an ideal world, that's how it would be. Number two, passages that attack one's doctrine must not be dismissed. Scripture is the foundation of doctrine. So he says, if you have a doctrinal position and you go and you study the Bible and you find out your doctrinal position is contrary to what the Bible says, you don't throw out the Scripture. You throw out the doctrine. And the pattern for textual critics throughout history has been to remove or delete passages they could not themselves reconcile with their, their own understanding or doctrinal predispositions. And, and that is, that's origin. That's Westcott and Hort. They had a predetermined doctrine, and when that predetermined doctrine did not suit well with the Bible, they edited the Bible to fit their doctrine. They did not edit their doctrine to fit the Bible. And that is a major folly. Number three, textual criticism cannot be merely interesting. It must be approached with a proper level of importance. This is particularly true with the Word of God. It must be dealt with with great reverence. And um, too often it's too often people are flippant about it. As Christians, we can appreciate secular interest in God's Word, but the reality is that Scripture is of the utmost importance. Without Scripture, we cannot truly know God, nor can we fully understand His salvation. That is essential. Number four, many of the passages that textual critics desire to remove are incredibly important, like Acts 8.37. Verse 36 says, Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? All the modern Bibles, based on Alexandrian manuscripts, they follow the Alexandrian manuscript and delete Verse 37, which has the answer to the question in verse 36. In fact, if you have an NIV, if you use an NIV, you open it right now to Acts chapter 8, look at verse 37, you'll find it is not there. Your Bible says 35, 36, 38. Now, it's amazing because the question is asked in verse 36, what has hindered me to be baptized? And in your Bible, if you have an NIV, an ESV, uh, any, any modern Bible, NASB, they, they ask the question, and then they immediately go down on the water and he baptizes them. There's no answer to the question. Now, if you know that you must be saved by faith in Jesus Christ before you can be water baptized, then you'll understand the, the, the level of importance of that passage. Uh, what, what's even more incredible, you know, it's... It, I agree with him that about you know regarding this statement or regarding this rule that he's laid out. But even the slightest removal of, of any words, it turns into great folly. You know they they removed the latter part of the verse of Luke chapter four verse four. Now that, think about this. This causes the whole thing to explode. Jesus says in that verse, "Man shall not live by bread alone." But by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God, in every modern version, except maybe the New King James, it stops. It's all, all that ver- all verse four says is, man shall not live by bread alone. So if that's, that's the case, you have a Bible that removed the words, but by every word of God. 
you literally deleted the words that tell you you need every word of God. That is a foolish thing to do and really summarizes the whole issue. The word of God itself commands that men should never add nor remove from Scripture. I would stick to that. Number five, it is impossible for man to identify what aspect of Scripture he deems necessary versus that which man deems unnecessary. Who are you going to put in charge of that? I I would stay away from that. Attempting to do so sets a very dangerous precedent. It also places authority that belongs to God alone into the hands of sinful men, and I don't want to be one of those men. If you want to be one of those men, that's between you and God. You deal with that. The Lord was really clear in the Bible how he was going to handle that, so that's up to you, but I'm not participating. All right, the next segment, Principles of Biblical Criticism. Textual criticism has been a developing science, one that I presume the world needs. I am going to criticize textual criticism's approach to God's Word. I'm not going to criticize the science of textual criticism. I'm certain it is a helpful tool uh, that this world needs. I'm just not so certain it has been used uh, to be helpful towards the Word of God. As a discipline, its value is connected to extant antiquity as well as great literary classics. Pertaining to biblical criticism, Dean Burgeon notes that there was no consistent standard as late as the 1880s. Now, that that might be a good thing. I've tried to think this through. How can it be, especially in the height with the Texas Receptus in the 1600s and then the the King James Bible not long after in the 1600s? You know, there's just so much happening back to back there uh, regarding the Word of God on, on the world stage. How is it possible that that there are no real standards for textual criticism up to that point. But if there had been, it might have hindered um, Erasmus' ability to to do his work and the King James translators' ability to do their work. So it might have been a good thing. Uh, um, I I don't know one way or the other. Burgeon explains that textual critics not only disagreed, but that individual critics were personally incoherent. Before 1880, the empiricism that existed was useful, but a bit shallow. Participants did not possess the depth and integrity needed to produce proper conclusions regarding difficult questions. And uh, Dean, Dean Burgeon required something of, a gr- of greater depth. He, was, he, was not, uh, he wanted something far more methodical. He, he did not accept the arbitrary nature of textual criticism at his time. Uh, he argued that while the facts were available, a proper scientific method was not in place to reveal a sound conclusion to those facts. And that is essential. What is a man? What is a woman? Well, apparently nobody knows anymore. There's no way to come to a sound conclusion of those facts. Um, that you, you don't want to be in that situation. Empirical data is great, but great data with no sufficient guiding factors, it, it can be useless. It can, be, it can even be problematic. Um, it, it, you can have the truth sitting right in front of you and have no way to understand it. Man, what a terrible situation to be in. Burgeon was certainly in position to make such demands. His life's work would demonstrate the depth of examination he desired. Uh, Dean Burgeon would spend 12 or 13 hours examining one letter of one word in some biblical Greek text. He was known to work 13 hours per day examining respective texts He was not advocating for something he did not practice. Uh, Dean Burgeon used Tischendorf as an example of this 
disconnect uh, between extant factual information and integral conclusions. Uh, Bergen found that Tischendorf made no less than 3,572 changes to his own manuscripts without explanation. Why would you do that? Who do you think you are? What a shameful thing. Uh, Tischendorf's attitude toward reckless change revived an atmosphere of intellectualism that made God subject to man. And it has continued. Even today, in independent Baptist churches, I speak of independent Baptists because that's the circles that I'm in, and, and I, uh, I don't think you will hear the truth in any helpful form outside of independent Baptist churches today. Uh, to you, that might be a bold statement, but I, I guarantee you, you test it out. Uh, I'm not suggesting independent Baptist churches are perfect by any means. I, I, while I am a Baptist, I, I submit to that idea. I have many problems with them and, and tend to be somewhat of a thorn in their side. Not intentionally. I don't have a, a, an extensive Baptist background. I got saved when I was uh, 29 yeah, 29, 2010, I, I got saved. I was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, I had been in and out of church growing up, far more out than in, and, and the only churches we went to, for the most part, were, were old Southern Baptist churches. Uh, I really didn't know anything about church. I really didn't know much about God. I knew the gospel. I had two very godly great-grandmothers, uh, but I didn't know much outside of that. And as I began to study and learn, I, I didn't enter the Christian world with independent Baptist presuppositions. And, uh, and I still don't have them for the most part. I have some of them. But the reality is, if you're going to hear the truth today, it's going to be in an independent Baptist church. Again, that doesn't mean they don't have problems that need to be worked out. But this idea still exists. Um, the idea that, you, that, that God, God's word is subject to man. It's a folly. It's sinful. It's dangerous. It's not helpful. And, and I, I, Lord willing, would like to see that change. Um, now, extant readings of God's word became a matter of opinion. No one questioned why Tischendorf, or anyone throughout history for that matter, thought it was acceptable to edit God's word. Instead, they adopted the idea that being spiritual meant correcting God's written word. And that's what bothers me. That's what still exists in many independent Baptist churches. They'll stand in a pulpit and say, well, this word in the Greek should be, who are you? You don't even, you don't speak Greek. You don't read Greek. You looked it up in a strong concordance. You don't know the syntax. You don't know the grammatical structure. You, you, you don't have a clue what you're doing. You certainly don't know more than the King James translators, who, who, which was the greatest assembly of the most brilliant linguistic scholars the world has ever seen. You want to stand today with your, you know, your iPad and tell people what God should have said. That, that's, not, that's not good. Thus, we begin to see the, the relevance of the very pointed title to Dean Burgeon's book, Unholy Hands on the Bible. It is unholy to question God's word. That is not, it is not holy. It is not spiritual. It's an ungodly thing, and I, I would like to see it disappear. Now, after Tischendorf... These ideas were further propagated by Hort. He began writing about the necessity for arbitrary changes to God's word. And, and, and Dr. Hort was as arbitrary as, as, as a human being could possibly be. 
That man made up whatever was, he, he, he would have made a great politician in 2022. He just made up whatever he wanted and he could get people to follow it. Uh, he led generations of Christians to believe God's word is subject to man's opinions. Now, the trouble here for Dean Burgeon was the random and autocratic nature of both Tischendorf and Hort. They did not create a scientific method that could be followed in an objective manner, um, which would allow you to test what they say and prove it and arrive at the same conclusion. That's the whole point of a scientific method. And that, that's exactly what they did not do. They just religiously and subjectively changed God's word at will. And according to their own personal predilections, they, they didn't care what God had to say. Uh, they, they cared that God was in alignment with what they wanted. And, and that's an ungodly position to take. And those are the men that many, that, that all our Baptist seminaries and Bible schools uh, that, that exist today in any major form, um, that's who they follow. Westcott and Hort and Tischendorf. And, and they join Westcott and Hort in mocking Dean Burgeon. You, you landed on the wrong side of this idea. Hort's work was deliberately devoid of proof. Let me say that again. Hort's work was deliberately devoid of proof. He often lied or made assertions that were historically untenable. Uh, he devised his own personal narrative. He had the people behind him to force it upon the world of Christianity. Now, when Dean Burgeon set out to prove these men had usurped authority and thereby deceived generations of Christians, he revealed his heart's desire from the onset. Now, this is a quote. I want you to listen to this. You can listen to my characterization of Westcott and Hort and Tischendorf, and then you can listen to this direct quote from Dean Burgeon, and then you can decide what you want to do from there. Burgeon said, and I quote, I trust that I shall be forgiven if in the prosecution of the present inquiry I venture to step out of the beaten track and to lead my reader forward in a somewhat humbler style than has been customary with my predecessors. That was his heart. Now, we're going to read that quote again at the end in full, and you'll really get a picture of his heart, and, and I think it'll, I think it'll, for many of you, it'll be very moving. The man was a blessing. And uh, this is a wonderful statement and very helpful. Uh, these words should be pointed today at both sides of the King James Bible equation. First, there are those who have followed the steps of Tischendorf along with Westcott and Hort. And then secondly, on the other side of that, there are those who are hardcore King James only, and they have arrived at that position with no proof. They're just dogmatic. And the first group arrogantly mocked the second group because their belief in the perfection of the King James Bible, uh, they live in intellectual bubbles where straw men are devised and then assigned to supporters of the King James Bible. That's where, you know, the idea of second inspiration comes from. You just made that up. That doesn't exist. Like that, that is your term. That is, that is an argument. That is a straw man you set up and then you attach it to King James only Christians. It's a very dishonest approach to this discussion. But then the second group also arrogantly mocked the first due to their lack of belief in God's word. And this group finds it difficult to follow men who claim to teach an infallible book that has, according to the first group, errors. They'll tell you, you got to obey God's word. Okay, where is it? It's in Greek. It's in the originals. Well, what about the book you have in front of you? Why are you teaching me the book you have in front of you? Uh, it's the best I have. Well, 
that's inspiring. That, that instills in me a, a, a desire to serve God. <laughs> uh, it's, it's ridiculous. But the trouble with the second group is that their arrogance is built upon dogmatism. If asked to prove their beliefs, they more often than not cannot do so. Uh, thus, they tend to hold the correct position, but cannot defend that position in the slightest. And it makes them look ignorant rather than spiritual. Um, you know, so Dean Burton desired to break away from the beaten tracks and discover a route to humility by way of truth. Imagine that. <laughs> Too many on both sides of this issue dogmatically lay down their traditional principles as though these principles supersede truth. Your tradition, you, 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 that's not where you want to be. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Even if these principles can be demonstrated to be false, they cling to their tradition. It is essential that the principles to which we cling are, are obvious and self-evident from God's word. They must be clearly proven, and we must be willing to move in the direction of truth when our traditions are challenged and found erroneous. Don't double down on a false narrative. Repent. Repent and believe the truth. That's going to help you. It's going to build you up. Uh, adopting this attitude will cause us to adopt results that differ from the norm, thereby causing us to become misfits within our own world. But God is pleased when we do right. We cannot transgress the tradition of God by keeping our denominational traditions. And uh, you, you can find that in Matthew 15, 3. Christians have indeed made the commandment of God of none effect through their traditions. And I pray we can put an end to such unfortunate realities. And you can read more about that in Mark 7, 9, Mark 7, verse 9 and verse 13. Now, along with Dean Burgeon, I recommend the listener try and set aside preconceived ideas. That, that was his, his goal. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the truth and then make a decision. Don't come to me with a decision already made based on nothing. Let's try and gather the data through the course of these studies and use that data to come to truthful conclusions. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, we can only be dogmatic about that which we can forcefully prove or about direct statements made by God in his word. And undoubtedly, somebody's going to say, well, what about faith? Well, faith is required. But even in God's word, faith cometh by hearing and not by imaginations fueled by feelings. You've still got to have a text in which to put faith in order to call it faith. When you say, I'm stepping out by faith, and you have nothing from God's word that demonstrates you're stepping out by faith, you're using your imagination, and you're hoping God will bless it. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's our foundation, and that's, that, that should be how we move forward. So the first reality Dean Burgeon would have us grasp is summarized in this statement. Ancient does not mean accurate. All right, now that's, that's my summary of what he teaches. Ancient does not mean accurate. And, you know, again, majority doesn't mean accurate. I'm okay with that. But when you have a majority spread across the world, written by different people at different times, and they all say the same thing, uh, you're, you're going to struggle to get me to find the fault in that or the problem with that. Just because there's a lot of something does not mean 
it's right. But when you have a lot of something produced all over the world by different people over a long expanse of time, I mean, we're talking about from the 4th century to the 16th century, and they all say the same thing, that's pretty strong. The age of a text has been a major point of contention. The crowd that believes Alexandrian manuscripts are superior due to age overlook the fact that even old documents can be nothing more than a depository of fabrication. It might be a corrupt document. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's true. The fact is, the men who possessed these most ancient of texts were open regarding their attitude about editing as well as the very edits they made to God's Word. Now, if you know someone edited the text that is the foundation for your Bible and that doesn't bother you, there's nothing I can do to help you. If you don't see the folly in that, there is nothing that I could do that, that would help you with that situation. I mean, that, that's up to you. That's between you and God. So with all this in mind, we will proceed with the understanding that ancient does not mean accurate, and we will allow factual information to guide us along the way. The bulk of our present study will focus on proving which line of manuscripts are correct, which will then point us to the Bible or Bibles around the world that can be trusted due to their Greek and Hebrew origins. That's all we're trying to do with these next several studies. And I, I hope you'll follow along, and I hope it'll be a help to you. Now, the Bible is divine. That's our next heading. That's the next topic. That, that's the next thing that we need to uh, understand. The Bible is divine. This fact possesses great difficulty that must be wrestled with from the perspective of the textual critic. That's where their starting presupposition falls apart. They don't care whether it's divine or not. Uh, if they're coming from an academic intellectual background, more often than not, they, they don't believe it's divine. Um, this book, as well as its Greek and Hebrew origins, cannot be treated as other ancient documents. This is the source of much of the confusion that exists regarding the history and accuracy of God's Word. So when it is viewed as an ancient human document, like the writings of Plato or Aristotle, then the entire endeavor is, is beginning in the wrong direction. You took a wrong turn from the very start. Uh, the Bible is authored by God himself. Its words are inspired. No other book can reliably make that claim. Uh, the Bible cannot be placed amongst a group of sacred books, though it, it is often forced into those camps by confused individuals. But uh, this point of contention is the main source of confusion regarding Bible, the Bible and textual criticism. It's not your average everyday document. Now, I, I appreciate scientists, researchers, um, men, of, men of scientific disciplines and, 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 and with respective backgrounds. I appreciate those who will admit there is at least something transcendent about the Bible. They may not be willing to admit it's God's word. They may not be willing to go far enough to say, you know, yes, it, it is the word of God. But they know there is something unbelievably unique about it. I have more hope for someone like that than someone who just throws it in a pile of books, you know, next to Beowulf or some other old story. So how, how do Christians go so easily from divine revelation to the corrupt thoughts of men? They have become so easily influenced by unbelieving men of intellectual stature and at least subconsciously place them on equal authority. I, I don't know how we got there. I don't know how 2020 through 2022 didn't help you 
stop being there. Uh, intellectuals have been destructive throughout history. Have they been helpful? You could probably point to some some cases where that might be so, but overall they've been they've been problematic. Uh, you know, so both the Lord Jesus Christ and his word have been shamefully handled. This fact was present in the very early days of the Christian faith. While the Lord was on earth, he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. The same attitude exists regarding his word. From the early days until now, it has been despised. Too often the Bible has been subject to reckless malice, but just as often God's people follow the teachings of the offenders. Why? It sounds like they're being swayed by vain philosophy. And uh, again, I, I hope it's something that can be corrected. One man after another came along and adapted God's word to their own ideas. Many of these attempts became well-known and even revered by Christians. Examples would be that of the Septuagint or the Diatessaron. Both are corrupt documents that have garnered <laughs> reverence by people who profess to love God and his word. From origin to Tischendorf and continuing on today, to correct is to corrupt, no matter the sincerity or lack thereof. If you correct God's word from the pulpit or with a pen sitting in your office or with a computer or a typewriter, you are corrupting God's word. To correct is to corrupt. There's no way around that. All right, we're going to wrap it up there, and um, I sure thank you for listening and taking the time to follow along. We'll pick up uh, next week with another uh, set of studies from, from the work of Dean Burgeon, and uh, I hope it'll be a blessing and a help to you. I thank you so much for listening and following along. Uh, we certainly have a lot more to say about this, a lot more material to cover and to go through, and, and, and I hope you'll pray for us as we do this. Soon, we're going to be working, beginning work on translating and editing, but both are needed. Both will be realities of the Luganda Bible. Uh, Luganda speakers have a long Christian heritage and history of missionaries coming here, but unfortunately they ended up with a very corrupt book. And Lord willing, we're going to help them with that. If the Lord gives us the ability, we're going to try and get that accomplished. And, and we should be starting. I'm, I'm organizing things now, getting things together, and we should be starting, Lord willing, very, very soon. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. <laughs>